In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. seat of wisdom, a holy guardian angels and patron saints, St. Agnes, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming back tonight in the midst of the difficult weather. And in tonight's conferences, I'm going to focus on two of the Beatitudes, especially since they pertain to Lenten practices. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and I'll talk about in, in some con in relation to that, almsgiving as one of the um, Lenten practices as recommended by our Lord himself in the Gospels. And then also blessed are those who mourn, and I'll talk about penance in relation to that as well. The book of Proverbs says, better a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked in his ways and rich. So the first of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are these people? We all know what it means to be poor, just physically poor. A poor person lives day by day. He doesn't have an abundance of possessions saved up for the future. Every day, a poor person has to work right, to earn the bread that he lives by. So his life and his work are concerned with necessities, food, clothing, shelter. There's no time for vacations and pleasant diversions. And if someone is particularly poor, he'll sometimes even lack necessities for a time. The life of a poor man is summed up well by the proverb, the poor man toils as his livelihood diminishes. And when he rests, he becomes needy. So we see who the poor man is physically. Those who are spiritually poor are those who live their spiritual life in a way that people who are physically poor live their bodily life. Just as the physically poor man works each day to receive his bread, the spiritually poor man prays each day to receive his spiritual nourishment. He prays with his heart, give us this day our daily bread. The physically poor man does not have time for unnecessary distractions, and the spiritually poor man sees that he must always attend to the necessities of the spiritual life, prayer, works of mercy, confession of sins. And he does not give in to unnecessary distractions. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the internet, for example. The physically poor man sometimes lacks even necessary food for a time, and the spiritually poor person will sometimes feel abandoned by God in desolation in prayer, yet all the while will continue trusting in his Heavenly Father to provide for him. So there's one way to look at the poor in spirit. Another way to understand the poor in spirit are those who are detached from wealth because of their love for God. Now, there are people who 
are detached from wealth for different reasons. Some people are just lazy. <laughs> they just, that's not meritorious, huh? Other people might be subject to false ideologies like communism. So they think that wealth in itself is evil, right? But neither of those describe what our Lord is talking about when he says the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who out of love for God, they do not desire wealth. And in fact, even spurn it in souls such as St. Francis of Assisi with this perfect poverty spirit. In a third sense, the poor in spirit can refer to those who are humble. That is, those who do not have pride, do not seek the glory or honor or esteem of men. And all of these ways of understanding expression poor in spirit have three qualities in common. They all trust in God, God to provide for their needs. They all are detached from wealth and honor. And they all love God more than wealth or honor. Whoever has these three qualities can be considered poor in spirit. Now, right away, an objection arises. Isn't wealth a blessing? Sometimes even in the scriptures, we talk about wealth as a blessing in the scriptures. For example, Abraham and Job were considered blessed because God gave them many material possessions. So it is true that all created goods can be considered a blessing from God. God did not make creatures as a snare to entrap us. He actually made them as blessings for us, and specifically, blessings which should be for us a sign of his love and his goodness for us. But wealth is only a blessing in a relative sense, unlike virtue, which is a blessing absolutely. And a sign of this is that God always takes away our wealth at the end of our lives. Right? I like to say everyone dies a Carthusian. Doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't take it with you. So, virtue, on the other hand, is an absolute good. God doesn't take away our virtue at the end of our life. <clears throat> the account of Abraham and Lot found in Genesis illustrates how the desire for wealth can be an impediment to spiritual growth. As we read in Genesis chapter 13, both Abraham and Lot became very wealthy, and the land could not support their herds, so their herdsmen began to fight. That's how wealthy they had each become. So here's the passage. But Lot also, who was with Abram, had flocks of sheep and herds of beasts and tents. Neither was the land able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, and they could not dwell together. Whereupon also there arose a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and of Lot. Abram therefore said to Lot, Let there be no quarrel, I beseech you, between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. Behold, the whole land is before you. Depart from me, I petition you. If you will go to the left, I will take the right. If you choose the right hand, I will pass to the left. And Lot, lifting up his eyes, saw all the country of the Jordan which was watered throughout before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as the paradise of the Lord and like Egypt as one comes to Sagrum. 
And Lot chose to himself the country about the Jordan, and he departed from the east. And they were separated, one brother from another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot abode in the towns that were about the Jordan, and dwelt in Sodom. One of the more striking things about this passage is how frequently it repeats that on account of their material possessions, two close relatives had to live apart from each other. It says it over and over again. Material goods are the least of all goods because they are exhausted by a single individual. If I eat a pizza pizza, you can't eat it. It's mine and only mine, or yours and only yours. I can't wear my socks and you wear my socks at the same time. So material goods always divide because if we want them, we have to take them from someone else. And if someone else has them, we can't have them. Right? So they often cause strife, even between family members. And they often cause people to give up greater goods for the sake of lesser ones. For undoubtedly, love and living together with those whom we love is a greater good than any material possession. Yet, as a passage from Genesis states, they were separated, one brother from another. This theme of brothers being separated by material goods is found many times in Scripture. For example, in Luke's Gospel, we have Luke chapter 12. A young man comes to Jesus and says, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then just a little bit later on, in Luke chapter 15, we hear the parable of the prodigal son. Where the younger brother wants to divide the inheritance, and his older brother is bitter at him for it. So we see this all the time, how the desire for money divides even family members. And I've seen this myself many times as a priest. Someone dies, and then the inheritance, the question of the inheritance comes, and family members fight bitterly over the inheritance and even hate each other as a result. I knew one case of a man who had been divorced from his wife and living with another woman. And because he had some tax problems, he asked his mother to leave all of his inheritance to the woman he was living with. But she was a good woman. She did not approve. She said, no, I'm not going to leave your inheritance to this person who's not your wife. And he hated her for the rest of his life and never spoke to her, even, even when up to the day she died. Refused to speak to his own mother over money. It's a terrible thing. Now, a second thing about this text is that while Abram is completely detached from his wealth, right? He says to Lot, whatever land you want, take it, because I don't care. Go to the nicest one if you want. Lot, on the other hand, he's very attached to his wealth, and so he chooses where all the green grass is, where he can support his herds, you know. And he's willing to dwell with the Sodomites in order to, you know, increase his wealth, right? He forsakes the companionship of his exceedingly virtuous kinsman Abraham and chooses to dwell with exceedingly vicious men for the sake of wealth. So while both Lot and Abraham were righteous men and pleasing to God, and both of them did love God above all things, nevertheless, there was a difference. Abraham also loved all things for God's sake. Not so Lot. 
It's true, if Lot had to choose between God and his wealth, he would have chosen God. He's referred to by St. Peter as a just man. But when push came to shove, he did not love all things for God's sake. So Lot was someone still attached to his wealth. And as we read further in the book of Genesis, when God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he sends some angels there to rescue Lot and his family at the request of Abraham. And what happens? Lot remained attached. Here's the passage. As he, Lot, lingered, the angels took his hand and the hand of his wife and two daughters because the Lord spared him. They literally dragged Lot and his wife and his daughters out of Sodom before the destruction. So attached were they to wealth, huh? You see that? What was the result of this difference in their loves? Well, Abraham's love had the power to save those who were dearest to him. Lot's love was strong enough only for his own salvation. He was not able to save his own wife, who upon looking back, we read, was turned into a pillar of salt. Lot didn't have a reservoir of extra love to save those whom he loved, whereas Abraham was able to save Lot because Abraham loved all things for God's sake. So, now why is it that there are dangers associated with wealth? There are, in fact, in Scripture, three different dangers associated with wealth. The first danger is that we love wealth so much that we're willing to steal or do injustice to others in order to get it. And I'm probably not talking to those people here. Those people don't generally go to parish missions. But we read about this in St. James' epistle, the fifth chapter. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for your last, for your, for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So St. James is condemning those who love wealth so much, they're willing to take advantage of their laborers and hold back their wages, their just wages. That's obviously the most serious and wicked attachment to wealth. But the second danger of wealth is a little more subtle. This is someone who is unwilling to part with their wealth, even though there's someone who needs it more than them right there. And we read about this in St. Luke's Gospel in chapter 16. In that Gospel, we read that there was a rich man who dined sumptuously every day in linen and purple. And there was a poor man, Lazarus, who sat at his gate, right there, close. And he would not even give to Lazarus the scraps that fell from his table. All he had to do was give him food that he wasn't even going to eat anyway. But he didn't do it. And we find that he's condemned. Because he loved his wealth so much, he was unwilling to share even his excess. So, there is another danger of wealth, a second danger. 
But it's the third picture of wealth that I want to reflect on because this is the one that afflicts even the pious, even people who make it to parish missions. We read about this in the 12th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. One of the multitude said to him, Jesus, teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who has made me a judge or divider over you? And then he said to them, take heed and beware of all covetousness. For man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a striking parable. This man is not condemned because he defrauds his labors of their wages. It doesn't say anything about him having an unjust you know, acquisition of wealth. It was his own land. It doesn't even say that he had someone nearby who needed help, some poor person that he neglected, like the case of the rich man and Lazarus. This man is condemned specifically because he is not rich toward God. What does that mean? It means that this man let his wealth become a substitute for God's fatherly care for him. He basically said, now that I have all this money, I don't need God's care anymore. I don't need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I've got daily bread for the rest of my life. I'll never need to depend upon God's care any longer. He is not rich towards God. So, this is a serious lack in the heart of any person. A failure to appreciate that this relationship of trust with our Heavenly Father is more important than food itself. Imagine if you are a good father, and being a good father, you provide food for your children every day, three square meals every day, and you notice that one of your sons starts squirreling some food away, always takes a little bit back from the table and back to his room, and makes a little stockpile of food in his room, and eventually just locks the door and doesn't come out anymore. How would that make you feel as a father? This little boy was more interested in the food you provided than in you. This is what we do to God when we store up treasure for ourselves and are not rich towards God. We say with our lips, I trust you, but then we make a safety net out of our possessions. Our actions speak louder than our words in the ears of God. I cannot help but think of the beautiful character from the Fiddler on the Roof, Kevya, the poor Jewish peasant, 
And throughout the entire movie, he's in a constant dialogue with God. It's kind of cute the way they do it, because every time he talks to God, there's a little camera angle from above, you know. He's looking up at God. You know, what did my poor, you know, cow have to do to you that he came up lame, you know? But Tevye, in spite of all his poverty, he's constantly in a dialogue with God. He depends on God for his basic necessities every day. And he prays and he prays and he prays. He is a man in communion with his Father in heaven. And that's the great advantage of poverty over wealth. If you're really wealthy, it's hard to pray, give us this day our daily bread and actually mean it. So that's the greatest danger of wealth, the possibility that we might break or rupture or at least lessen our communion with our Heavenly Father. Now, I know that there may be wealthy people here, and I do not condemn you, and God does not condemn you. But I do say this, do you really stay in constant communion with God? Do you have a sense of your constant dependence upon God for everything, for even your basic needs of life? If you don't, your heart needs to change. You need to deepen your communion with your Father in heaven. Maybe one of the things you can pray for daily and beg from the Lord is detachment from your wealth. Maybe you just say to the Lord, Lord, Free me from any detachment, attachment to my wealth. In fact, even give me a positive dislike for living a wealthy lifestyle. Give me a spirit of simplicity and generosity. Free me from any kind of substitution of my wealth for your fatherly care. Pray that fervently if you are someone who's wealthy. Now, how can we overcome difficulties in living out poverty of spirit? One of the big problems that we face as Catholics is that we have a hard time taking Jesus seriously when he talks about the dangers of wealth. On one occasion, Jesus says, it is harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That sounds pretty hard to me. However it works, it sounds hard to me. And so we should definitely take these words to heart. Now, people start to make excuses. For some reason, wealth gets the pass, right? Doesn't matter if it's something else, oh yeah, I'll stay away from that. But if it's money, we always find excuses. The first excuse goes something like this. It's no sin to be wealthy, as long as I'm not attached to my wealth. Right? And I say in response, you are right. It's no sin to be wealthy, as long as you're not attached to your wealth. But you heard Jesus say, it's very difficult for the wealthy to be saved. And you claim not to be attached to your wealth, even though you're willing to make your salvation much more difficult for the sake of the wealth you're not attached to? Are you serious about that? Think about that. Well, then the second excuse comes. It's not for me, Father. 
It's for my family, it's for my children. I want my children to be financially secure. I don't want them to ever have to worry about money. I'm earning this for them. Oh, so when your children are wealthy, it'll be harder for them to get into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. So you want to make your children's salvation nearly impossible. Great, wonderful. I don't think that's a great example. You could have instead enriched your children with an example of virtue and mercy to the poor. But instead, you save up money for them. My own father was a beautiful example in this regard. My father was the most generous man I've ever known in my life. He never in my life, I never saw him in my life pass a poor person without giving them something. If we were driving the car, and on the other side of the road with a divider in the middle, there was a, a homeless person pushing a shopping cart. He would make a U-turn and give me or my brother some money to go out there and give that person something. Never I saw him pass a poor person my whole life. But one day when I was a teenager, about 16 years old, my dad decided to take us to Tijuana, which is right there in the northern part of the Mexican border, right up adjacent to San Diego on the U.S. side. And if you know anything about that crossing, you can just go over on foot and there's a footbridge on the, the Mexican side. And so we get to that bridge and we're about to walk into Tijuana. And there's like 300 beggars all sitting on that bridge. Every one of them has a little, you know, paper Coke cup waiting for some alms, you know. So I thought to myself with a little smirk, dad's finally gonna pass a poor person. He can't possibly give them all something. Boy, was I wrong. My dad took one look at all those beggars. He turned right around and said, come with me. He went back to the American side. He went to a bank, cashed a $100 bill, and filled his pocket with quarters. And he stopped and gave every single person on that bridge something. At the time, I was so irritated. And I look back on that day with great compunction. Because now I realize in all the years that Jesus sat in the persons of those poor beggars, Jesus never met a man as generous as my father. My father spent my inheritance on the poor, but he gave me in place of it an inheritance of an example of generosity and gave me, thanks be to God, because of my father's example, practically complete detachment from wealth. I never thought it was a difficult thing to take a vow of poverty. It was the easiest thing in the world because my dad was just so generous. So we're kind of out of excuses. There really is only one reason why we could desire wealth, and that is to be generous with other people. It's pretty much the only reason. And even that's not the best thing we can do in our life. But nevertheless, that is illicit desire. If you are wealthy, you don't have to give all your money away. But you do have to be generous with the money that you do have and live simply and not prefer a life of wealth and not look down on other people who are not as wealthy as you. But really figure out ways to spend your life being generous and hopefully by the end of your life you will have spent pretty much everything on the poor. Of all the saints, 
the one who comes to mind more than any other as an example of this beatitude, St. Francis of Assisi. St. Bonaventure, another saint who wrote his biography, said this, no man was ever so covetous of gold as he was of poverty. He forsook everything. And his observance of poverty, St. Francis was unbending until the end. The words of G.K. Chesterton in his work on St. Francis of Assisi aptly express the joy which accompanied the poverty of St. Francis. He plunged after poverty as men have dug madly for gold. And it is precisely this positive and passionate quality of this part of his personality, which is a challenge to the modern mind. It is certain that he held on this heroic or unnatural course from the moment when he went forth in his hair shirt into the winter woods, to the moment when he desired, even in his death agony, to lie bare upon the bare ground, to prove that he had and that he was nothing. And we can say with almost as deep a certainty that the stars which passed above that gaunt and wasted corpse, stark upon the rocky floor, had for once in all their shining cycles round the world of laboring humanity, looked down upon a happy man. The joy of the freedom of spirit that comes for those who are lovers of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So that's a, an incentive to almsgiving, isn't it? In the season of Lent, incentive to that generosity. Let us turn now to that beatitude, which is an incentive for penance. And that is, blessed are those who mourn. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This second beatitude is perhaps the most difficult to understand because on the face of it, it contains a contradiction. Happy are those who are sad. That's what it says. Happy are those who are sad. It sounds like a contradiction, right? What on earth is Jesus talking about? Well, if human nature were simple without any kind of distinction or division in the human soul, it would be impossible for a human being to simultaneously rejoice and mourn. But human nature is not simple. The human soul has a lower part and a higher part. St. Paul makes reference to this in his epistle, first epistle to the Thessalonians, when he writes about spirit, soul, and body. The spirit signifying the higher part and the soul signifying the lower part of man's soul. Right? St. Thomas Aquinas says this about Christ's soul when he hung upon the cross. In Christ's soul there followed joy from the vision of God and at the same time the pain of the passion from the feeling of injury. The higher and the lower appetite could be affected in different ways so that the higher would rejoice 
and the lower fear or grieve, as happens in one who hopes to get health from some horrible remedy. So, that's why it's possible to simultaneously rejoice and mourn. We mourn the lower powers of our soul, we rejoice in the higher powers of our soul. Now, who are those who mourn? It's interesting because if you look at the Greek text here, it gives you a little bit more insight to this question. It's not just people who are sad. The Greek word there is penthentes, which means those who weep over death. Isn't that interesting? Those who weep over death. And it's not just talking about people who are sad when people die. That in and of itself is not necessarily meritorious, right? But it's a kind of a weeping over death in a holy way, in a meritorious way, not a worldly way. So how can we do that? Well, one way that we can mourn in a meritorious way is by voluntarily accepting the pain and the suffering which come with putting our old man to death, as St. Paul says, by penance. St. Francis of Assisi used to call his body brother ass, right? He's like, let's put it into submission because it's just like a donkey that just wants to buck and resist the soul, huh? St. Paul commands us to put to death then the parts of you that are earthly, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and the greed that is idolatry. This begins at our baptism, but it's through our own choices that we continuously put to death our old self, subject to original sin. St. Paul in another place says, I even consider everything as a loss because of the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have accepted the loss of all things, and I consider them so much rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. A righteousness from God, depending on faith to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we can mourn death insofar as we do penance to put our old man to death and we feel the, the suffering associated with that. In a second way, we can mourn death when we mourn the spiritual death of ourselves and others. That is, we mourn over sin. Right? That's also a meritorious way. In the Garden of Eden, remember, as we just heard about on Sunday, God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the fruit of the knowledge of tree of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat it, or even touch it, you shall die. Well, they ate it, and they didn't physically die, but they died spiritually. And that is a death worth mourning over. St. John says simply, he who does not love abides in death. So Pope St. Leo the Great, writing on this beatitude, says, religious grief mourns sin, either that of another's or one's own sin. Nor does it mourn for that which is wrought by God's justice, but it laments over that which is committed by man's iniquity, 
where he that does wrong is more to be deplored than he who suffers it, because the unjust man's wrongdoing plunges him into punishment, but the just man's endurance leads him on to glory. So that's another way we can mourn and be blessed. Finally, and I think this may be the most profound sense of this beatitude, we mourn death meritoriously when we mourn the death of Jesus. For it was on account of his sins that Jesus, our sins, that Jesus had to die. And by sorrowing over his death, we make reparation for its cause. St. Bonaventure writes, He who desires to go on advancing from virtue to virtue, from grace to grace, should meditate continually on the passion of Jesus. And there is no practice more profitable for the entire sanctification of a soul than the frequent meditation on the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's why the church has attached a plenary indulgence to the Stations of the Cross. So this is a beautiful way to mourn and be blessed. Meditate well on the sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary, especially during this holy season of Lent. Do the Stations of the Cross. or just meditating upon a crucifix. All of these ways of mourning will make us blessed. Now, why is this reward they will be consoled appropriate? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. Well, it's interesting because, again, if you look at the Greek, this is very helpful. The word for console here is derived from the same word as the word attributed to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the consoler. And the etymology of this word, parakletus, means to call someone to your side. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are those who mourn over death, for someone will be called to their side. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Isn't that interesting? God, someone called to their side. And anyone who has experienced mourning over the death of a loved one knows having the consolation of another is the effective, the extent that we have someone who we love consoling us and someone who can be present to us and united to us in our time of grief. Now, most of all, we find this happening when we mourn over the death of Jesus. If we're mourning over the death of Jesus, the reward we're promised is that Jesus will be called to our side in heaven, will be united with the one whom we love. We mourn over the death of Jesus. And even if we're mourning over our own sins, We're mourning because we're doing penance with our bodies subject to original sin. Even in that sense, at the resurrection, our bodies will be called back to our side, reunited to our souls as a consolation, as a reward for us. Now, of the saints, a beautiful example of those who mourn, after Jesus and Mary, of course, St. Rose of Lima, From her youth, St. Rose of Lima used to practice severe penances. She did this not out of an exaggerated sense of guilt or self-loathing. She did not loathe herself. She loved herself. She thought she was loved by God. And she preserved her baptismal innocence. 
Yet she also understood that to make voluntary reparation for others was pleasing to God. So these are words hard to believe and hard to hear, written by St. Rose of Lima. She says, we cannot obtain grace unless we suffer afflictions. We must heap trouble upon trouble to obtain a deep participation of the divine nature, the glory of the sons of God, and perfect beatitude of soul. See that blessed are those who mourn and do penance. If only mortals would learn how great it is to possess divine grace, how beautiful, how noble, how precious. How many riches it hides within itself, how many joys and delights. Without doubt, they would devote all their care and concern to winning for themselves pains and afflictions. All men throughout the world would seek infirmities and torments instead of good fortune in order to obtain the unfathomable treasure of grace. And no one would complain about his cross or troubles that may happen to him if he would come to know the scales on which they were weighed when they are distributed to men. An unbelievable passage, isn't it? About someone who's so elevated in her spiritual life that she's willing even to accept all the infirmities, pains and sufferings of this life because of the joy of soul that would bring her in the higher part of her spirit. It's a great soul. And I can't speak for you, but I speak for myself. I have a hard time carrying my own crosses, just the little things that just come to me by my life, you know? So we can see that um, beautiful way in which St. Rose of Lima practiced this beatitude. I want to close by speaking about ways of overcoming difficulties in living out this beatitude, because in some way this is the hardest one. We just so re we're, we find it so repugnant to our nature to do any penance, you know? And that's a good thing to be reminded of here in Lent, like Lent without regrets. Don't be afraid to do penance. In the Gospel of St. John, Jesus gives his apostles some instruction on the second beatitude. And there he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you will weep and lament, right? Blessed are those who mourn. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she is delivered of a child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Here, Jesus offers a response to the problem of intense suffering. The first thing he tells us is that sorrow in this life is inescapable. We don't need faith, we're all gonna die. Death is never pleasant. We're all gonna face it, it's inescapable. That's why Jesus says, amen, amen. He starts off with that, with that vow. Amen, amen. You will weep and lament. There's no getting out of it, okay? That's the first thing. So, there is a consequence of that is, there's no sense in trying to run away from, spend our life running 
from sorrow and pain. We'll only be wasting time and energy. It'll catch us and find us soon enough. So many people try to avoid suffering by forms of what I call emotional anesthesia. Alcohol, drugs, eating, spending hours on the internet, shopping, watching television, pornography, gambling. They're all forms of emotional anesthesia, ways of running from our sorrow. None of these things will help us, and they'll only add new crosses to the ones we already have, which end up being much heavier than the ones our Lord has prepared for us. The second thing that Jesus teaches us is, you'll be sad, the world will rejoice. That's going to make it a little bit worse, won't it? Because we always tend to compare. We're like, why is it that I have to be the good one? You know, we're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, like, why do I have to be the good one? And then I have to make all these penances and suffer and so on. All these bad people, they don't suffer, you know? Right, it says in uh, Psalm 73, it talks about the wicked. It says, um, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They suffer no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek, <laughs> right? Sometimes our comparison with others just makes it even worse. And the truth is, we'll have added suffering because we're faithful to Christ, right? Think about those bishops under Henry VIII, who, the few bishops who stood up against Henry VIII. They suffered more because they were faithful to Christ. The other bishops, they capitulated, you know. Go ahead, remarry, remarry, remarry six times, you know. And um, nevertheless, it was only those who were faithful to Christ that bore their suffering in a way that made them blessed. Now, when we compare like that, right, it's really important that we not be envious of the prosperity of others because this comparison only saps our strength. I want to give you two examples of that, one for men, one for women. Let's say you're a soldier, you're a man who's a soldier. You're sitting there at war in a foxhole somewhere. There might be some veterans here. Remember that experience? You're sitting in a foxhole somewhere. And you can sit in your foxhole and say, gosh, I wish I were back home like all those other guys that didn't join the army, safe and sound, sleeping in my bed. Here I am in a foxhole somewhere. Just make your life even more sad and difficult. But the other thing you can do is instead look to your other brothers who are there in the foxhole with you, suffering together in battle. Right? Their friendship, their love for one another is made stronger because of their shared suffering. So depending on who we compare ourselves to, we end up losing strength or gaining strength to do what's right. Well, same thing happens to women. I've seen this too. In most of society, if you go around and talk to women, they'll tell you how hard it is to have children, what a burden it is to have children. You know, 
most women are complaining about how hard it is to have one or two kids and just the, all the burdens that come with that, right? And they're in a, surrounded by other people who are always complaining about that, right? And of course, that saps your strength, right? You're always constantly surrounded by people who are complaining about how difficult it is to have kids, how bad it is when you have to take care of kids. On the other hand, I've also lived in environments, I think about where I went to college, I went to a place called Thomas Aquinas College out in California. And there the attitude was, children are a blessing. Like the, there was a family there, the Grimm family, who sent most of their kids through Thomas Aquinas College. The, they had 17 kids, can you believe it? No twins, 17 kids. And all the girls there looked up to Irene Grimm, the matriarch, and was like, wow, she's just the best woman, you know? And they all loved the idea of having a big family. So living in the exact same world as these other women who were surrounded by an environment of complaint, and raising children with the same financial resources and all the same difficulties, on the one hand, you'd get women that would gladly have 10 or 12 kids, and on the other hand, you had women that for one or two kids were bitter about it. It was all about the comparisons, nothing about the objective reality. Right? If you surround yourself with people who have an uplifted spirit, that helps so much. Right? Complaint and envy can turn a perfectly bearable sorrow into despair whereas encouragement and mutual support can turn a nearly unbearable burden into something willingly born, joyfully born. That's the truth. Careful who you surround yourself with. Now the third lesson Jesus teaches us in this passage is that our sorrow will be turned into joy. He doesn't say it will be replaced by joy, it will be turned into joy. Okay? That's something. It's as if to say the very sorrow itself becomes the matter of our new joy. And I'd like to give a very simple example of this. Let us say that you have your favorite sports team, and they're in the championship game, you know, the Super Bowl or something like that, right? And there are three different ways your team could end up winning. One, they could win by a blowout from beginning to end, wire to wire, and they win the game handily. Or they can win a tight game, right? It's a close game, but they win at the end. Huh? But you know the best possible outcome? If your team is behind by a lot, and it seems like all hope is lost, and somehow they make a miraculous comeback at the very end to win the whole thing, that's the best outcome of all. And you remember that with more joy. The sorrow is turned into joy. And God has arranged, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, for all of our lives to become a come-from-behind victory. All of us are going to come to the end of our life like Jesus. We're going to die lose everything. And then God's going to make our life a come-from-behind victory. And for all eternity, it's going to be so good celebrating that victory. Our sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus also says that a woman, when she's in travail, no longer remembers. And this is important, to forget our past sorrows. 
apparently women produce a kind of a chemical when they give birth that helps them forget the, the suffering they endured when they gave birth. Isn't that amazing? And there are types of amnesia that actually do that. They don't actually take away the pain when you're suffering it. They take away the memories of your form of the pain. Isn't that amazing? And apparently it works really well. Because half of the pain is actually the remembrance of past pains and the anticipation of future pains. So Jesus is telling us we can't hold on to the pain of our past. We can't let it define us. We have to forget our sufferings and live in the present. And how do we do that? I'd like to give this example. I, I like to play sports while I don't much anymore. I'm too old to do that. But when I did, I'd be out there and I'd be playing a, a sport that involves some rigor, you know, maybe football or rugby or something like that. In the middle of the game, you're getting hit and hit hard. And you know what? You're going through the whole thing, you barely notice it. And then you get to the end of the game and you're just bruised and you just feel everything, you know? And I would mark, remark about that. Wow, if I were sitting there very quietly in the lotus position, gazing on my navel, and someone came up and whacked me, the way the linebacker whacked me when I was trying to get through the gap. I would have felt every bit of it. But because I was just focused on something other than me, it's almost as if I didn't feel the pain while it was happening. That's how we have to be, brothers and sisters, in the midst of our present suffering. Focus on something outside of you. Whatever you do, don't focus on yourself. You're only going to amplify your pain. Okay? Of course, the primary person to focus on in the midst of our suffering is Jesus Christ. If we focus on him, we remember his sufferings, the sufferings of his blessed mother endured for our sake, our ability to endure our sufferings and even joyfully accept it will be greatly enhanced. And then we shall already in this life begin to experience the truth of the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. Joseph. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I almost forgot. Uh, some people have been asking about these conferences, the notes for these conferences, and where they came from. Nearly everything I'm using in these, these talks is coming from a book I wrote on the Beatitudes. It's called Heart of the Gospel. It's put out by Catholic Answers Press, FYI. So if you want all this in written form or something like that, then that's a good place to go. And I think it's on Amazon or something else. So Heart of the Gospel, so for anyone who's interested.